0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Nishant, and welcome to another episode of the Nishant Girl Show. The mission of this show is to spread mindfulness awareness, and my job on this show is to invite world class performers to extract the practices, routines, and habits to live a fulfilled life. Today's guest is Dr. Jonathan Fisher. Dr. Jonathan is a Howard trained physician and practicing cardiologist with 20 years of clinical experience. Dr. Fisher integrates the science of optimal human health with the art of joyful and heartful living. He emerged from his own journey through professional burnout as a cardiologist, working on the front lines of life and death. He now leads transformational programs that focus on reversing the spiral of disengagement and burnout in healthcare. He shares evidence-based practices and skills that restore joy and meaning to the practice of medicine. In this episode, Jonathan talks about his day job as clinical Cardiologist, Resilience and Well-Being, His Burnout, As a Cardiologist, Meditation and Mindfulness, How to Increase the Richness of Deep Connection. To no more, keep listening. Dr. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi, and I'm super glad and super thrilled, excited to have you on the show.
1: Thank you. I'm really honored and privileged that you invited me and I love the work that you've been doing. I've been listening to your podcast and I've loved your guest and also your whole attitude and approach to mindfulness and compassion.
0: Thank you so much. You come from a medical background and I would like to ask you if you are in a social gathering and somebody asks you, what do you do? Or let me rephrase, in, during coronavirus, if you're in a virtual Zoom conversation and somebody asks you, what do you do? How would you describe?
1: So my, what I call my day job is as a clinical cardiologist. So I work half-time in the office and half-time in the hospital taking care of patients from ages 18 to 101. And people come to me when they have any sort of concerns about their heart. It might be a symptom like pain in their chest, or trouble breathing or rapid heart rate, or they may already have a heart condition. They may have had a heart attack or a leaky valve and they want to have evaluation and proper treatment. So that's what I do in my regular job. And I also am fortunate that for the last two years I've had kind of a side responsibility within my organization, working on what's called the organizational resilience and well-being team to really look out for the caregivers, the doctors and the nurses and the staff
0: organizational resilience and well-being and on your another job is or half day job is being a cardiologist. so what is the correlation between these fields
1: the heart (laughs) the heart is the correlation so my purpose and mission in life is to help other people take care of their hearts and though i spent the first 15 years of my career thinking only about the physical heart the one that's beating in the chest because of my own experiences and feeling disconnected with my own life for a long time i recognized that i wasn't paying attention to the heart that was even more important the the spiritual heart the emotional heart the loving heart and i over many many years slowly learned how to take care of my own emotional heart and i realized that i wasn't alone that we were so focused on Medicine and biology and medications and testing, then we were missing out on something very, very important beneath the surface, which is a great deal of disconnection, heartache, and burnout in healthcare. And so that's the connection. I decided that I wanted to help both hearts
0: physical heart, emotional heart, and a spiritual heart. Mm. Do you see that doctors, especially doctors, work on their emotional and spiritual heart?
1: Do I see that other doctors are doing that? It is something that's becoming more prevalent. I think historically in medicine, it is not something that has been focused upon. So there's an old phrase that says, physician, heal thyself, which means take care (laughs) of yourself, right? How can you care for someone else unless you really take care of yourself? And it also seems in the last 50 years in modern medicine that we've gotten away from that that it's almost becoming more machine-like, like an organization where the providers are considered as just elements in a large organization rather than human beings who cry and suffer and experience death and loneliness and loss. And so I'm seeing that in the last 10 years, the conversation, Nishant, is shifting towards an emphasis on physicians and nurses really starting to look after their hearts and the administration an executive leadership, recognizing that if we don't do that, we're going to have trouble.
0: Jonathan, you talk about your burnout as a cardiologist when you were working and still working Mm. on the front lines of life and death. Why did you feel and how did you realize that you are burning out?
1: Mm. Well, I realized it when... A combination of external events in my life coincided with the buildup of internal events over the course of 20 years since I was a child. And I found myself going to work every day, really miserable. I would go into my office, I would walk very quickly past the staff, the nurses, past everyone, just to get to my office, and I would consider it my goal to just get through the day, get through the next patient and the next and the next and the next, doing a good job, or so I thought by making a good diagnosis and doing the right testing and giving exactly the perfect treatment. But I felt empty. And I recognized that I wasn't happy. And it started to show up in my own personal life at home with my wife and my children. And people were saying that I that I really wasn't fun to be around. And I felt a deep sense of pain in my in my own heart because i remember being a, a happy child and somewhere along the way over the course of 20 years of medical training that spirit had left me and i knew that it was time to find a way back
0: would you mind walking us through if there if there was any instance or any event that was leading to your unhappiness
1: yeah so it started in I would say in residency. So, in medicine, you go through medical school for four years and then you do residency. Many people do it for another three years or more. And when I did my residency, I really felt the pressure of life and death. I had experienced, for instance, there was a a moment where I was responsible for the intensive care unit and a helicopter came in with really, he was a boy. I mean, he was 21 years old and his heart stopped working because of a, a serious virus. And we were resuscitating him for over an hour. And after that happened, and he ultimately didn't survive. After that happened, I felt alone. I didn't feel supported. There was no one to talk to me that this is a major life event that his family was experiencing, that I was experiencing. It really was trauma. And that really never left me, that experience of, I know how to help save people's lives, but if I can't save their life, what do I do with those emotions? And that was the moment I realized that there was a separation in what was expected of me. There was another experience in residency where a young woman who was 40 years old, she was married with a child, had developed a breast cancer, and it became quite severe, and ultimately I watched her in the hospital, slowly dying, and I felt incredibly helpless. And there was very little conversation about what's it like to take care of another person whose life is slipping away? What's it like? And so that for me was part of the process of losing, in a sense, my deepest humanity. Losing that spirit that I had as a younger person who wanted to help people. I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to save the world. And yet I found that I was faced with all this suffering that I often could not control. And it led to real anxiety inside me and even depression.
0: After those instances and going through your burnout what steps did you take to get into your emotional and spiritual heart?
1: The first step, I think, was to recognize that I was indeed helpless. <laughs> so it, it, many of us who are high achievers, type A personalities, doctors, people working in the tech fields and business, we like to believe that we can do anything. And That's many me. of us like, <laughs> right? Right? And many of us believe that we not only can we do anything, we can do it by ourselves. We don't need help. If you ask for help, Nishant, what does that mean? It means you're weak, right? That's a teaching that says, oh, do it yourself. And this is a very sort of Western concept, uh, this individualism, this fierce, rugged individualism, which goes back 150, 200 years. And there's a downside. And so what I had to do was I had to recognize that I didn't know what to do the first time in my life. I was burnt out. I was down. And so the answer to the question is, (laughs) I did what anyone did, is I Googled it. (laughs) I Googled the question. So I Googled the question and it was something I typed in and it was like, how can I be happy again? That was it. And one of the top hits that came up was this thing called positive psychology. And I said, "Oh, that sounds interesting. So I, I started reading about 12 years ago, and I'm kind of a self-help junkie, and I read every book you could find, I listened to every audio tape you could find, I went and heard speakers, and so I I really explored the science of positive psychology, and within that, it was discussed this thing called meditation, which I thought was for like people who were mystical and living in India in a (laughs) cave somewhere, not for like a Jewish kid from New Jersey. What am I going to do meditating? And <laughs> it turns out that I bought a, a audio cassette tape back then. And uh, I spent seven minutes trying to follow my thoughts or keep them quiet or whatever I thought I was supposed to do. And it was miserable. I just, <laughs> but, but, you know, I was very persistent and I stuck with it for about a month every day, just seven minutes. And I noticed little changes going on. And so that really was the answer to the question is, how did I start? I started by asking, how can I get help?
0: And that was twelve years ago.
1: Yeah, so it was 2008, roughly around there. I mean, the spiral downward had been going on for 10 years before that. There was a a very close death in the family. I, I moved from New York to North Carolina. I changed jobs. I joined a large healthcare organization, which at the time felt very impersonal. And I was overwhelmed by responsibilities at work. I felt like I was overbooked in my clinic. And I really had very little control over my own life. And so that eventually led me to, I guess you'd call it a breakdown.
0: You mentioned that you learned about positive psychology. You read so many self-help books. Mm. You you listened to so many speakers. Do you remember some of your favorite self-help books from that time?
1: Yeah. So the one that got me started was, well, there were two. So one is called Flourish by Martin Seligman, who is known as the father of positive psychology, who in 1998 at the American Psychological Association did something very radical. He said, for a hundred years since Freud, the world has been focused on fixing mental illness, fixing disease. And he said, what if we Instead, went the other way and followed people like Abraham Maslow, the U.S. psychologist from the 1950s. What if instead of focusing on what's wrong with us, we focused on what's right with us when things are going well? How can we live the best possible life? And so he shifted the field of psychology. So that was one. There's another wonderful psychologist named Sonia Lyubomirsky, and she wrote a book called The How of Happiness which was very influential as well. And that was more practical steps. So I'd say those were two big ones. And then one other great thinker is uh, another psychologist who was kind of buddies with Martin Seligman. And he, his name was Mihai Mihai, who wrote a famous book called Flow. And we all talk about flow and getting in the moment and really getting in the zone. Well, he literally wrote the book on flow. So those were three very influential books early on.
0: And they are very powerful books. I've read some books from Martin Seligman. So they're very amazing books to focus on what you have and what you can do with your life without Hmm. just focusing on what is wrong all the time. Yeah. So after you started working on all these things, all these aspects of mindfulness or meditation, what changes did you feel in yourself?
1: I felt things slowing down a little bit. And I also noticed that I was a very restless person. I never was able to see myself from the outside. I was wrapped up in this thing, which was like just doing Jonathan Fisher. So I had these habits and I I would wake up in the morning and I would think, well, what am I going to do next and next and next? What meditation did is it forced me to be still and the discipline of meditation forced me to also be quiet and to quiet the external world. So what I noticed is I noticed that there was an internal world that was like volume cranked up to 25 and I could start to listen to the thoughts, listen to the impulses inside of me and recognize that they were pushing me all over the place and I was kind of like a zombie just following them. And what meditation did is it forced me to sit still and to be quiet so that I could just slowly recognize I did not have to listen to everything these subconscious impulses told me. And what I also noticed, the real magic of it for me was that the subconscious became conscious.
0: Subconscious became conscious. That is powerful. How did you get into, or I should ask you, what was that kind of? meditation
1: so i've experimented with different forms of meditation and there's so many different types but the one that's come back over and over for me is a form of what you could call insight meditation or vipassana and as you know insight meditation is literally looking inside trying to have sight inside yourself inside your mind and your body to learn how how our own bodies and minds work so uh, that's been the practice, and the practice has been trying to recognize these unconscious patterns of thought, and to let them run their course and become an observer rather than a participant. And so that's been one form of meditation that I practice. And the other form of meditation is different, and it's called non-duality, and it goes by many names. It's uh, Advaita Vedanta. There are other forms, um, but basically. It's similar but radically different than insight meditation. Whereas insight is trying to observe your thinking mind and your feeling body as an observer, what insight says is that may not be the best approach. What what non duality says is that worsens the problem. And the fundamental problem and the cause of all of our suffering is that we believe that we are separate from the world, that we are strong ego that I am so different from you, Nishant, and that I am different from my environment. So I don't have to be concerned about the environment. I don't have to be concerned about you. I can just live by my own story. And we know that that's false, that we're all connected. So if I practice too much watching my mind as an observer, that observer itself becomes separate from another part of myself. I don't know if I'm explaining this well. It's uh, This is amazing. Please. It, Okay, so so these are the basic the two forms of practice that I started off with, and then I discovered five years later, the form called loving kindness, which I'm sure you're well familiar with. Metta meditation, metta meditation, metta bhavana, loving kindness, and for me this changed everything, because initially my nerdy geeky mind, the scientific doctor mind, wanted to analyze meditation, right. Let me do this exactly right. And let me study in books how to do it. And now I was being faced with this idea. Wait a second. There's another way to meditate. It has nothing to do with, you know, uh, observing. It has to do everything with revving up the heart, warming up the fires of your heart. Once again, those fires that were really burnt out uh, for many of us through years of anxiety and separation and stress and overwhelm. And just the idea, and for me, this fit in very nicely with positive psychology, that we could actively and intentionally cultivate parts of ourself that we wanted to grow and let the other parts just be there and accept them.
0: How many minutes of meditation do you do every day?
1: I'm going to be totally honest with you, Nishant, because, <laughs> uh, because there's often, and I've noticed this myself, I look at other people and I say, oh, this person meditates for two hours. So like um, Dan Harris, who's one of my idols, he was on ABC's Nightline, and he started the 10% Happier app. Initially, he would meditate for two hours, and I was doing 10 or 20 minutes, and I, I was thinking, <laughs> I'm not a good meditator like him. <laughs> and so there's this tendency to take these habits of mind in the rest of our life and apply them to ourselves as meditators, like to be a perfectionist. So to answer your question, I'm very forgiving of myself. I'm not overly strict. And I would say, and the other thing is there's two forms of mindfulness practice, if you will. There's one where you're literally sitting down on the couch or you're lying down or you're doing moving meditation, so-called formal meditation. And then there's another that's called informal, which is really what it's all about. Like During the day, if I'm taking a shower or brushing my teeth, can I bring full attention? So between formal and informal practice, I would say maybe 15 or 20 minutes a day. And then there'll be times, usually one week each year, I'll spend either two days or three days in silent meditation on a retreat, or I've spent uh, seven days at a Zen monastery two years ago in silence. So it really varies depending on the season. I kind of get a little booster every year of a, of a retreat, which really helps deepen and enrich my practice.
0: Silence is powerful, and it, this is difficult for a lot of people. And I'm curious to ask you, what have you gained or let go from being in silent state?
1: Hmm. So what have I gained by being in the silent state? I've gained self-awareness. I've started it's you know uh, the movie Wizard of Oz
0: Not really <laughs> I'm not aware So of
1: Wizard that. of Oz is like this movie from it was one of the early color films in the United States and there was this guy he was the wizard and he was creating all these illusions for the people and Dorothy was going down this yellow brick road to see the wizard and eventually she saw the wizard but then she snuck around the back her dog led her there and she Peeked behind the curtain where he was hiding and she saw that there was all these levers and wheels and gears and he was kind of Pretending to be this wizard, but he really wasn't and so what the silence has let me do is to pull back that curtain to see that inside there's all these conflicting emotions desires and drives But there's no real one ego or identity that is Jonathan Fisher. I, or what I would call I or myself, is really just a collection of memories and predictions and fantasies. And that that helped me soften my whole experience of life. That if I face difficulty or challenge, I realize it's usually because I believe that I'm that wizard again. So being silent... I can see that, no, there's no one big me. It's really a collection of my senses and my memories and my thoughts.
0: I love how you explain that. I would like to ask you if someone is going through any tough, challenging time, what
1: would you recommend them? I've been searching for the answer to this for a long time. (laughs) 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 and Being the scientist, I've been searching for one answer that would help everyone. And I know better than that. Because I take care of thousands of patients every year as a doctor, I recognize that you can't give one approach to every person. However, I have noticed there is one common approach that helps most people who are facing challenge. And it starts by recognizing where suffering comes from. I'm not talking about pain. There's a phrase that says, in life, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I think that was uh, Sylvia Borstin who said that. And so once we recognize that all of our suffering, all of it, not the pain, but the suffering comes from the mind, then we can start to realize how to get out of the suffering. And the first step is to stop running away from our suffering. Recognize that all the things we do, whether it's addiction and alcohol and computer and anger and even addiction to anxiety, anxiety and worrying over and over and over, those are all ways of escaping our pain. So the first step is to recognize there is no escape. And the Buddhist nun Pema Chodron wrote a wonderful book called The Wisdom of No Escape. And in that book, she had one quote, which really changed my life and changed my approach to the answer to what you're asking, which is how should we face suffering? And she said, suffering begins to disappear, when we can abandon the hope or belief that there's anywhere to hide, suffering begins to disappear when we can abandon the hope or belief that there's anywhere to hide. So, the first step is really saying um, what we're doing right now isn't working, so we have to try a different way. The next step is to create a distance between ourselves and the mental activity of suffering. And that goes by many names, it goes by something called decentering in psychology or Affect labeling is another mechanism where you just kind of say what it is that you're experiencing. So Nishant, if you're, if someone is suffering, they might just say sadness, sadness, sadness. And that may not sound like something special, but it really is something amazing happens when we start to label our emotions. We create some distance from that emotion governing our lives. And we can start to look at the emotion and recognize that, well, that sadness is is not one thing. It's a combination. It may be some tightness in the chest, some quick breathing, a little sweatiness, some nervous thoughts, and then we see it start to soften and start to crumble in a way. So the first step is to separate ourselves from the, whatever's bothering us, creating some distance. The second step is deciding that pushing it away or running from it just doesn't work anymore. So acceptance, acceptance is the key. And the American psychologist, the father of humanist psychology, Carl Rogers, really says that once we can start to accept ourselves as we are, that's when we can start to change. Once we can accept ourselves as we are, that's when we can start to change. Self-acceptance. Yeah, self-acceptance. So there are many more steps and we can go through as many or or as little um, as you like or we have time for. but. Really, those are the first key steps. Number one is separating ourselves or or decentering ourselves from the experience by la- labeling it. The phrase is just name it to tame it. Name it to tame it. And the second is acceptance.
0: I read something similar to this, actually. Can I explain that? Please. So I read this book, Awareness, from Anthony DeMello. I read this book over and over. And I have read this book more than 50 times in the last six months. Mm. So he talks about, he's Indian Jesuit, and he died in 1988. Mm. He talks about that don't be attached to your suffering. Just observe yourself the way you observe other human beings. Mm. Try to come out of your body. Just imagine yourself coming out of your body and just observe yourself. Because Mm. the suffering or the pain doesn't exist in you. Because if suffering or pain exists in the reality, then everybody... Should suffer. Everybody Mm -hmm. should be painful. So there is something wrong inside of you. So come out of yourself and observe your pain. Just observe Mm -hmm. and see what is happening. What is the root cause? And don't be attached to that. We human (coughs) beings get attached to our suffering. It's -hmm. like there is an instance or example that I can say if I'm having a toothache, then I keep thinking about my tooth all the time. Mm -hmm. Right? If Mm -hmm. I'm happy, then I forget myself. I'm focusing outside. So when I'm suffering or I'm in pain or I'm sad, then I'm thinking about myself. I'm obsessed about myself. So in that situation, just doing something for others, focusing out, maybe helping out any homeless person, just doing things for others Mm. will help when we are suffering. Mm.
1: That's wonderful. Nishant, you said so many things there that were interesting and so many things we could talk about. Please. Um, Taking the last part first, we know from the science of positive psychology and research experiments that have been done that what you said is exactly true. By showing kindness to other people, we suffer less. Anxiety reduces when we volunteer, you know, for an hour or so, even a week. Or if we just go out of our way to help one person each day, being intentionally kind can get ourselves out of our own self-story. It's It gets back to what I was saying before about non-duality. A lot of our suffering comes when we forget that we are connected and we see all the suffering and racism going on in the world today. And at the core is this fundamental disconnection that we have. So we evolved to be connected, to be together. And yes, to keep ourselves safe. And so by looking outward, And helping other people and showing compassion, there are actually chemical changes that happen in our body which improve our mood. So chemicals are released when we're kind. Something called oxytocin, which is the cuddling hormone that we get when we're nursing as children. Something called serotonin, which is the happy hormone. Something called dopamine, which is in in a way the excitement hormone. All of these are released when we do things that are kind for other people. And what I find fascinating is that these have Beneficial effects on our hearts and our minds and on our bodies. And if I can go back earlier to what you were saying about the book Awareness, there's a practice there. It's a very practical way to do what what was described in that book. And that's when, if you're sitting in meditation, one exercise you can do is while you're sitting there, either on a chair or on the floor, during the meditation, at some point imagine yourself sitting across from yourself and looking back at your body, just sitting there breathing, Uh, just observing. And that practice makes very real what you were saying, which is you recognize that we live in these bodies and we believe that we are just a body or just a mind. We're much more than that. We are awareness. Awareness itself is much greater than your body and your mind. Another exercise you can do is just, If you're looking around your room right now, you experience the world as yourself. But now if you close your eyes, and I ask you to think of the Eiffel Tower, or think of the Great Wall of China, in your mind, you just saw an image. Now, it's not in front of you, and yet you traveled there. And that's because the whole world, in a sense, exists in your awareness. But it's when we become very small and focused on our own narrow concerns, like the toothache, like you said, that we feel very isolated from the world. But when we expand our awareness, we feel very connected with the world.
0: Kindness matters and compassion, of course, matters. Is there any other practice that comes to your mind to be more kind towards ourselves and towards others?
1: One practice to be kind to ourselves is the practice of self-compassion. And there are many, many ways to practice self-compassion. Self-compassion. Well, first, it it helps to back up to define our terms. What is kindness? What is compassion? And how are they connected? And so compassion is the desire to alleviate the suffering of others. Kindness is the desire to see other people thrive and flourish. And there are really three directions that we can point our compassion. So if there's suffering. So Nishant, if you have a toothache, I can be compassionate for you that doesn't mean I pity you. It doesn't mean I just feel bad for you. It also doesn't mean I experience what's called empathic distress where I I start to feel the pain in my own mouth because you're (laughs) feeling pain, right? Because that doesn't help you. That leads to uh, real distress. It does mean that I can understand and in a way sense what it feels like to be you. And then I can offer to help you in some way. That's compassion. So the first direction of compassion, and this was described very well by paul gilbert out of the uk the second direction is pointing compassion towards ourselves so that same desire to help alleviate suffering but why don't we treat ourselves as well as we treat our best friends and then the third direction is really out to the whole world can i broaden this general sense of compassion that i want to alleviate suffering wherever it is in the world because when someone else suffers in a way it affects me negatively And with that said, there there are a couple of practical ways you can practice self-compassion. One way is simply just put, put your hand over your heart. Now, it feels a little bit awkward to do this if people are watching you. So maybe if people aren't watching you, you do it at first. Or if people are around, you can just kind of fold your arms and your elbows, almost as if you're thinking, and just give yourself a little squeeze or a little hug. That can release that same cuddle hormone, that oxytocin which has a calming anxiety-reducing effect on the body. And if we want, we can offer ourselves some silent wishes when we're suffering. And this all comes from Kristen Neff and Christopher Germer, who've really essentially literally written the book on self-compassion. And we just recognize that there's a moment of suffering. You say, I'm suffering. Remember, like we said before, start by naming the experience. The second is to remember that we're not alone, that everybody suffers and that makes us feel less disconnected. And then the third piece is saying, okay, I'm suffering, other people suffer, but can I not do what I normally do, which is to yell at myself and blame myself for something? Can I instead just be kind to myself? So those are the three steps of a self-compassion break, and be I mind mindful
0: that. of the inner critic.
1: Exactly. And and the mindful of the inner critic, that's what I find interesting about that is a, a lot of I hear a lot of people talking about well, recognize your inner critic. It's not that easy to do unless you practice mindfulness. So, I only it took me about 10 years to totally demolish my inner critic, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it only happened because I sat in meditation every day and I would hear that critic coming up and saying, You're not meditating right. You're not being a good father. You're not being a good doctor. All these negative things that I would hear. And then I would start to challenge those thoughts. But without that practice of silence and stillness that we talked about, I think it's hard to recognize that voice because it's so conditioned to be part of our operating system. And what we're trying to do is something radical. We're trying to literally rewire our brain. And that voice of self criticism often is there since we're five years old. So you could be 20, 30, or even 40 years hearing that voice. It takes a lot of work, but it can be done to replace that voice with an inner cheerleader.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: It really is there to say kind things like, hey, you're doing your best job, buddy. I'm really proud of you. You're trying hard. You're going to make it through this. I'm there for you all the time. I love you so much. And I know all the things you've been through. I just, I support you, whatever's happening today. So these are the types of voices now that I have inside my head instead of the other old, really negative voices.
0: Uh, I love how you explain that. We all have those inner critiques, those devils. We all have that. It just... Recognizing that, being aware of it, and allowing them and not neglecting them, not avoiding them. I remember this guest house quote from Rumi, Mm. Jalaluddin, that invite all the fears, all the devils. I'm paraphrasing here. And Mm. don't avoid them. Just invite and just talk to them. Just treat them as your friends. You mentioned that. You have, it, it has taken you 10 years to get to this point. And I would like to say that for our listeners, if you're just starting this mindfulness of meditation, it's a process. And Dr. Jonathan has been a medical doctor and it has taken him 10 years. So please do not give up, keep trying, keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. And you always talk about being joyful and heartful living. What mm. does joyful and heartful living mean to you?
1: Mm. Joyful living might mean something different for me than it does for you. So there is no one way to live joyfully. What it does mean is we don't have to accept the life that we were given. If we're unhappy, if we're suffering, we don't have to live that way the rest of our lives even if we're just sort of going through our day-to-day, feeling mm, ho-hum, feeling average, just sort of getting by, I'll go to work today, I'll go to work tomorrow, wait for the weekend, and then do it all over again. Well, if that's the way we live our lives, we end up, when life is over, looking back and saying, where was the joy, where was the pleasure? And so for me, joyful living is knowing what makes me feel good in this moment, and also knowing what makes me feel proud, and a sense of service and accomplishment if I look back at my past. And when we look at the science of joy and the science of happiness, that's really, those are two aspects of joy, and we need both. We need to experience pleasure in this moment, and we also need to have a sense of accomplishment and a sense of well-being in our lives as a whole, even if this moment isn't quote-unquote happy or pleasurable. So, that's what joyful living means to me. And heartful living means not closing myself off to the emotions that I experience, not viewing any emotion as bad or broken or wrong. But as Carl Jung talked about, embracing all the shadows, all the darker parts of ourselves that maybe we were afraid to look at or were ashamed of. What would it be like? If instead of pushing those things down deep inside of our self-conscious and hiding from them and running away from them through addictions and other behaviors, what would it be like if we just said, this is part of who I am? Can I welcome all parts of myself and not be so afraid of even my own self? And so that's heartful living, is living from a place of compassion and love.
0: And that's what Viktor Frankl in the book Men's Search for Meaning says, that purpose is something when we have a purpose, meaning for life, it doesn't mean that we are going to find purpose every moment to moment. Mom- every moment can be challenging. It can be tough. You know, when we, but overall, when we see that we are happy, we are fulfilled, we have a purpose, but it doesn't mean that every day is going to be purposeful or joyful or happy.
1: Mm, yeah. He quotes Frederick Nietzsche in that book. And he's who said that if, if a man, knows his why he can endure any how meaning if you have a sense of your purpose even if this moment is challenging and unpleasant you can you can figure it out you can work out a way I love that book Uh, I read that in 2008 very early and that was a, a pivotal book in my own life so I'm glad you brought that one up
0: I actually have that book right in front of my eyes. Mm, <laughs> my that's
1: a good one. Good one to have in front of us all the time, Man, Search for Meaning. And really, that's, that's kind of a bigger conversation, right? Isn't it, Nishant? Is like, why yes. are we here? And what's the purpose of all of this? It, and for me, this, I'm going to confess to you, and I hope you, you're not upset, but I don't really care about mindfulness. I, I really don't. I I think it's useful as a skill, and I think it's one of the most powerful tools we can offer people to reduce suffering and to bring joy. But for me, it's not about mindfulness. It's about, can we find a sense of purpose and service in our lives? Can we find a sense of joy in our lives so that we're not languishing through our lives and following these addictive patterns that keep us separate from other people? the addiction to frustration, the addiction to rage, the addiction to racism, the addiction to anger. And instead, can we live from a higher place? And it's not easy. We've inherited these brains from millions of years ago that are basically fearful brains that spend their times worrying about what's going to happen next and making, <laughs> making plans for futures that aren't going to happen. So so I really love that book, *Man's Search for Meaning*, because I think that's what it's about. As human animals, we make meaning; we tell stories. All this is what makes us special, right? So, I, I just love—I uh, love that you brought him up.
0: And I, I like the distinction that you made, kind of between mindfulness and the purpose. I believe that mindfulness is just a tool to getting closer to our purpose and meaningful life. There are many tools in life that we can adopt, but mindfulness is one of the tools, and meditation is one of the practices in the mm-hmm. mindfulness. Have you taught or talked about meditation in your family, or do they pursue meditation?
1: Well, there. if you were to draw a line on a piece of paper about my approach to my family and sharing mindfulness with others, it goes up and down, um, <laughs> and, and it's because I've learned a lot since I started. And, and there's a famous quote, Nishant, which kind of answers your question for me. And it says that if you see the Buddha on the path, kill him. <laughs> kill him. <laughs> yeah, kill him. And and the answer is that it it it's not the Buddha. So someone who is who is talking about mindfulness all the time, and someone who's telling other people, well, you should do this, and this is how you should be, and this is how you should do. That's not really the idea. I think the idea is. And now, my children and my wife will tell you otherwise that I still haven't learned that lesson because I, <laughs> I find myself blabbering off at the mouth sometimes and saying, you know, this is how we, we do things. But uh, what I've recognized is less talk and more walk, which means if we can just be more present ourselves, if we can uh, overcome some of our own patterns of fear and disconnection and anger, whatever it is, these negative emotions that keep us separated, and if we can start to cultivate a rich, deep compassion and kindness in our own hearts and start to treat other people that way, there is zero need for teaching our families because children learn by watching. They don't learn by listening so much.
0: And being action-oriented, when our actions speak louder than words.
1: Absolutely. Answers. And if I can add a little caveat to that, because I've thought a lot about action, because you know, <laughs> there's Please a lot do. of talk in, well, there's a talk in the mindfulness community and meditation, which is that we do too much. We, we act too much. And, and mindfulness, as John Kabat-Zinn, is about the non-doing, right? Non-doing. So how do we reconcile this seeming dilemma between this action and wanting to do and then non-action? And the way I do is I view that sometimes not doing anything, just being still and quiet is often a powerful form of action. And so sometimes that's the only action that's required is not reacting just just being still and being present and being open, even if emotions become very challenging.
0: Doing nothing. And I read this doing nothing philosophy in Lao Tzu, Tao Te Ching. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you that I'm painting this picture of yours before and after. So before mindfulness and after mindfulness, how does your friends, family, or your patients, or your staff members see you? Is, do they see any difference in your personality?
1: If you ignored everything I said, because my answer is, <laughs> it, it, I, I, could, I could tell you whatever I want, and you wouldn't know if it was true or not. But if you instead go to my hospital right now, and you talk to the 45 staff members in my office, or if you go to the ho- that was the office, if you go to the hospital and you ask the nurses in the intensive care unit or the other doctors, they would tell you there has been a radical difference in the way they experience me since I started practicing mindfulness and compassion. Yeah. And the difference is now I, in, when I go to the office, instead of keeping my head down and barreling through the day and viewing everyone as just there to go through or to help me in some way, instead it starts off with smiles and high fives and hugs. And I talk to my staff about their personal lives and I ask them how they're doing and their, their spouses and their children with my patience my patients, many of them will not let me leave the office without giving me a hug. And I used to think that that's something, well, doctors shouldn't do that. We shouldn't get too emotional. Remember, I talked about my residency experience where we have to shut ourselves off. And what I realized, this heartful living is about allowing yourself to be a human being. And human beings are sad and we're happy and we're pained and we're joyful. And That has increased the richness of my connections deeply with my colleagues, with my staff, with my patients, with my administration, and within the whole hospital system and the healthcare system as a whole. Even the way I relate to the challenges of burnout in healthcare are radically different now. What
0: compliments do they give to you
1: usually? People say that I am calm and that I'm uh, caring and kind. Uh, People say that I'm a really good listener and that I'm very empathic.
0: They are amazing traits that every human being wants to have and they should have, I think. Mm -hmm. So does all these traits come naturally to you or you just keep doing practice more and more now?
1: Can I tell you what does not come naturally to me? Please. (laughs) Yeah, so being calm... Uh, does not come totally naturally to me because I I think I had a genetic tendency and it was reinforced in my childhood and even later towards anxiety. And anxiety is a worry or a fear that something bad is going to happen, even if there's nothing wrong. And it really comes from the imagination and a habit, this loop, this wire in the mind that just goes around and around. And so being calm uh, does not come naturally to me. Though after practicing for a decade and thousands of hours of meditation, it comes quite easily for me right now. And I really only get excited, and I, and I still have to tell you, I have triggers. There are certain things, whether it's frustrations at work or frustrations at home, where I do find myself getting frustrated and angry. But the difference, Nishant, is, because I am aware of my body, the feelings in my body, instead of it being too late and ready getting caught up in anger and yelling, I can feel the very beginning of the signal inside my chest that whoa wait a second I'm going to get frustrated here and then I can create some space with like a deep breath or or something else like that
0: and the result of mindfulness is awareness you're aware that this these feelings are coming into your mind and body and you have mm-hmm. tools to work at it do you how do you believe in the power of pause
1: So the the power of pause is necessary if we hope to achieve a different result than we've been achieving. So the human mind evolved to run on automatic pilot. And I, I always hesitate when I read mindfulness literature and they say, well, autopilot is bad and get away from autopilot. I agree with that to some degree, but I'd like to just step back and say that we need autopilot to some degree. Otherwise, I wouldn't know how to put on my shoes in the morning or I wouldn't I wouldn't know, you know, how to how to brush my teeth. We have to have certain ingrained pathways in the brain, these motor pathways um, that help us get through the day without thinking. However, none of us is perfect. None of us is calm and open all the time. And if we practice pausing periodically throughout the day, and I literally mean like instead of turning on your iPhone and playing with apps, just sitting and saying, what's happening inside of me right now? Just for a minute or so between patients or between meetings. In that pause, we can start to recognize things that are happening that maybe we don't feel are aligned with how we want to be, that kindness, that curiosity. So, Pause is required if we want to change. We can't just keep running forward and try and shifting the train tracks uh, without slowing down first.
0: Do you feel that we can transform the world by these basic, simple practices in mindfulness?
1: No. (laughs) (laughs) No. I'm being a little silly there. Um, I mean, my instinct is to say, "Of course we can," and I and I really do believe that. (laughs) I really do believe that these practices will change the world. Not only can they change the world, I believe that they will change the world. The reason I say no is that if any one of us sets out to change the world, we won't even change ourselves because it's if we start to look outward and we look too broadly too soon without looking at our own. Uh, deepest shadows and our deepest triggers and the things that we still have to do a little more work on, a little more acceptance, a little more kindness, um, we are less likely to change the world. However, if in a non-selfish, non-self-centered way, each day we commit to improving ourselves just a little bit to be exactly like we want the world to be, I do think we can change the world, especially if we start in small circles. So if I start (laughs) with myself start with just my family, and then maybe just be a certain way when I'm around my friends. Now, some of us have chosen to go on and be mindfulness teachers and meditation teachers, and that's the way that we want to change the world. And that's one of the ways that I've been very privileged to help make a change in our healthcare system, where I lead workshops and retreats for doctors and nurses and executives and leaders. And I do feel like there is a way to change the world, but we all have to start within ourselves.
0: Can we say that we don't have to change the world? We just have to change ourselves.
1: I think I think it's natural that once we make that change in ourselves and we recognize that we are not really separate from the world, we all, and I know a lot of people, Nishant, you probably do too, at some point focusing only on the self is not satisfying. And it leads to a desire to look outward. And so I agree with you, if we start by looking inward at the self, eventually we move outward to the world. But it's very important for me to say that mindfulness and these practices are not whole. They are not complete if we're only focusing on ourselves. So we have to try and help in service of others, in service of making the world a little bit better. And that was the original concept, you know, in the Buddhist literature, Mindfulness wasn't about self-help. It was about living in a more compassionate society, bringing more compassion to to others, not just to ourselves.
0: We all need certain practices. It's a it's a sweet spot finding that balance between inner and outer being. We still need business productivity hacks. We still need, you hmm. know, things to go in the world and achieve things and then come back into our inner being and become relaxed be compassionate mm. and kind mm. towards others i think when we have those kindness compassion traits we deal with ourselves and others you know better way mm. I, I, i'm curious to ask you do you feel that this mindfulness thing is becoming commercialized
1: yes <laughs> uh, <clears throat> it is. And, you know, it's, it's, it's only natural. I mean, we live in a capitalist society and, and we, many of us need to uh, buy food and to have shelter. And some people have decided to make it a, a career to teach mindfulness. But just like any teacher who's providing any skill or service, it's reasonable to be paid for that, to be remunerated for that. As far as the commercialization, I don't really have an issue or a problem with it, except when the core message is lost, when the core message is lost. And what I mean by that is many applications of mindfulness in the organizational space may just be, well, let me teach you how to reduce or I'm going to show you how to increase your productivity at work. And that is the mindfulness program that you get for your your employees. For me, that is the commercialization of mindfulness uh, because it misses something deeper, which is about helping people find a deep sense of their meaning in life and helping people connect with others and with the world. And so for me, if mindfulness does that, it's okay if it's commercialized. We have to incentivize people to spread the message in some way.
0: If somebody is starting afresh in the mindfulness space, what is there any book or any other thing would you like to recommend? They're very mm. new to this space.
1: Yeah, so uh, recognizing that we all learn in different ways. Some of us like to listen, some of us like to read, and some of us like to do. Uh, what's wonderful is there are so many different ways. And so, for me, I like apps. And so, there are many good apps out there that you can find. You can find Headspace and Calm are two big ones. And Insight Timer and Ten Percent Happier and Wellness Coach. There are many apps out there. In terms of books, there are many books, but I love the one by John Cabot Zinn, who, which is the one I come back to over and over, which is called Full Catastrophe Living. And to go along with that book, there's another book, which is called Wherever You Go, There You Are. And these are two of his earliest ones. And they really are kind of like two ends of the spectrum for me. And what I like is they appeal to the left brain and the right brain. So full catastrophe living appeals to the left brain because it really gives a deep analytical understanding of, well, how does suffering happen? How does stress happen? How do we make things worse for ourselves? And how does mindfulness work? And he kind of is like the grandfather of mindfulness, at least in the West since 1970s. And the second book is Wherever You Go, There You Are. For me, it appeals to my right brain. It's much more magical and poetic, and it really kind of gets away from that analytical mind, which carried me around for so long. And so many of us, uh, John Kabat-Zinn.
0: Wherever You Go, There there you there You Are. I'll put those links in the show notes. Wonderful. Awesome. It has been an amazing conversation with you, Dr. Jonathan. And my last question to you for our call is, what's the impact you want to leave onto this world?
1: Kindness. More kindness. I want uh, people to give themselves permission to be kind to themselves because I believe that when people learn to be kinder to the darker and more painful parts of themselves, they naturally will start to be kinder to others. And I believe in the ripple effect of kindness, that if I'm kind to you, you may be more kind to the people you see today. And we have no idea the impact that can have on the world as it will be for our children and for our grandchildren. So so kindness is the legacy.
0: This is amazing. And as you've just mentioned, kindness, I would like to say that. I practice two things under kindness, two simple practices. Wherever I go, I would ask, how are you doing? How's your day going? Mm -hmm. And second, what's your name? So when I practice asking servers in the restaurants, what's your name? So they they ask. Nobody asks that. It's not a very common question, you know? Nobody Mm -hmm. wants to ask their name. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Dr. Jonathan. It has been an amazing, mindful, kind, compassionate, loving conversation with you.
1: Thank you so much, Nishant, and keep doing all the wonderful work you're doing to bring mindfulness and compassion to the world. I really support you.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode today. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, or you can visit https colon slash slash nishantgurg.me dot me. you can also share this episode with your loved ones to help them live a fulfilled life you are not alone in this journey we all struggle in life there is no shame in talking about it I go through my highs and lows I get depressed and these practices help me in living a resilient life you can also do this you've got this don't judge yourself you are doing the best you can and thank you so much again